Hey folks, this is Dan Tominski, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. So, my guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is somebody who will be familiar to all of you. Um, somebody who has played and sung on so many of the records that kind of got me into bluegrass in the first place and that are known and loved around the world. And he's here to talk about somebody whose records really sort of influenced him and who he loved. My guest on the podcast this week is Dan Tominski. Dan, welcome to Bluegrass Jamalon. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. It's so cool to have you here. Um, I mean, so much of the music that you've played on has been influential and inspiring to me and to so many people. Um, and I have a long list of people that I wanted to talk to on this podcast and you are naturally one of the people that was on it. But as soon as I saw the release you've got out now was coming, I was like, right, this is, this is the thing. This is what I'd love to talk to him about because Dan has a new EP out called one more time before you go, which is a tribute to Tony Rice. Um, and it features some songs that we all know and love that Tony played, um, and a range of people who played with and are influenced by Tony. Uh, along with a, a wonderful song, Dan's. Um, and it's it's just great. And I'd love to talk to you about the EP, Dan, and sort of how it came about and, and the reasons behind it. Because it sounds like you sort of started working on it pretty soon after Tony passed. Well, I, I did. You know, I had no idea that, that this project was going was gonna to come to pass. I mean, originally, all I really ever tried to do was um, to sit down and um, write something to help me, to make me feel better about the loss of, of my, my lifetime here. When uh, when the end of, of arguably the worst year we could have had um, was capped off with Tony's passing, I was devastated. And um, I didn't really think about writing music or doing anything like that. I sat down and I tried to uh, I tried to self heal, you know, and I and I was talking with some other friends who were close with Tony and Josh Williams was one of the guys who played with him in uh, in, in the last years that he toured and uh I got together with Josh and we wrote a song kind of to make us feel better. And after the song came about and I, I sat on it for, for a week or so, um, a couple guys on my team said, you know, maybe you should do some other stuff and maybe put, put together maybe a, a tribute. And as I listened to that song, it sounded like something that would work well for, for, for Jerry and Sam Bush and Todd Phillips, the guys that uh, made all that magic with Tony back in the day. So I was very mm. fortunate and, and helped me on this song. And then I, I started thinking of who Tony touched and, and really it's, it's endless. Like he, he touched everybody, you know, um, so much new talent out there. You might not hear necessarily Tony Rice, you know, right in there playing, but if you do know how to listen, sure. They, he's, he's influenced everyone. So I got a lot of young names to, uh, to come and help me out that we're all, you know, um, very appreciative of what Tony's contribution, you know, to music was. It turned out to be, uh, something I never thought I'd have a tribute record to, to my, my favorite musician slash singer, um, called One More Time Before You Go, and I'm so proud uh, so proud to have it up. And it's a beautiful thing, and just sort of like talking about those musicians, sort of the first first track, Church Street Blues, uh, you have Molly Tuttle playing on. And, you know, I think it's really interesting hearing you say about you're not necessarily going to hear people playing Tony, but there's all there's a bit of Tony in all of it. And and that is, from, from all the people I've talked to about Tony on this podcast over the past year or so, the thing that comes out is how much Tony was keen for people to sound like themselves, you know, to take what he'd done but make it theirs. 
that's what I pulled out of Tony's playing. I, I mean, as much as anything, no one else sounded like him. He was completely unique to himself. And I think that the players that I have on this tribute record um, do the same thing right from the get-go. When you listen to Molly Tuttle, it's, you just can't really mistake her for anyone else. She has the same thing for me that Tony had for me, a complete uniqueness in her right hand and in her technique that makes her almost uncopyable, you know, to, to play like Molly, man, you have to first understand her right hand. And if you watch her play, man, she has her own thing going on and all the players on this record do. And I think it's one of the things that, that Tony did lend to, to music was he made people look at it in a way to try to be themselves. I mean, his influence is all over the place and the technique that he had is arguably the best there ever was, but there's a lot of ways to get it done. And I think this record shows uh, several of those new players that, uh, that are getting it done in their own way. And that's really interesting about Molly because she definitely has, you know, of, of most of the guitarists around now, one of the most unique right hand styles that, that I've seen. And, and so did Tony. And you remember you describing his right hand style as like water flowing out of a glass at one point. Um, and, it's, it just is unique to him. He truly had a technique that if, if you really want to go down the rabbit hole to try to copy, to really copy his right-hand technique, each note is so dependent on the note that came before it. If any one thing falls off the track, it can be uh, it can be a train wreck to try to copy his style of playing, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it takes just just impeccable technique. You know, it just takes the highest level of technique to be able to to play like Tony did. And I think um, at that high level, you know, again, technique uh, is, is everything. Yeah, and it is the the sort of, um, I know you've talked quite a bit, particularly about Tony's rhythm playing. And that is something that just whoever I've talked to, you know, I spoke to Chris Eldridge on the podcast and he said if he had to choose between the lead playing and the rhythm playing, he'd take the rhythm playing all day long. And that's been a theme everybody just just worships the way Tony played rhythm. I really think all the musicians that I know would probably say the same thing. I mean, and this is taking nothing away from, of course, you know, one of the best, you know, solo guitarists that there were. Um, but it was not his solo playing for me either. It was, it was how his rhythm playing worked with a banjo that ultimately uh, got it done for me. He had a sense of, of, of timing and, and music. Really, it's really fun to get to, uh, to, to dive into a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And I remember sometime after, after Tony passed, Brian Sutton hosted a, a sort of thing on Facebook through artist works where he got a lot of people in that had played with Tony and listened to Tony and were fans of Tony. You, you were on there, Ron Block was on there, Critter was on there. And, and you said something really interesting on there. Um, and I thought about what people had said about the lead playing and what people had said about the the rhythm playing, but you said particularly the transitions between the two and the way he transitioned between the things that he played was just sort of unique and magical. I don't think anyone else ever got it done with, with quite such authority. I mean, his, it was when, as he went into his rhythm playing from a solo, it was easily the most exciting part of the solo, regardless of what he did, that transition really was was magical and he and again if you listen to stuff like that i mean it's he helped so many musicians grow and how they thought about music from little things like that for sure yeah and it's it's great to hear and i'm, I'm really keen to because there's five tracks on this ep and one of them is a track of yours and i'd love to talk about that in a minute as well but the selection of the selection of songs there's there's one from church street blues there's one from the 0044 record and also one from the Skaggs Rice record and those I mean just those three records on their own are kind of a 
you know, uh, they're all institutions in the world of bluegrass. Was it was it sort of important that they were all represented somewhere on there? I mean, that is the stuff that really affected me the most. So those are the the ones that I leaned on. They were the ones that I think made the biggest difference to me. I think um, as a as a musician, I didn't really. I wasn't a huge study of all kinds of music. Like I don't have a big music collection. I didn't sit down and try to learn everything from everyone. But the few people that I did, or the few, when I when I did choose to spend my time really trying to absorb information, um, Tony's stuff was the stuff that I chose. And Church Street Blues was one of his better examples of what you could do out of a C position on a guitar. It was just it, it was that song for me was water flowing out of a glass. And I spent so much time, you know, trying to uh, work on being able to to replicate some of his style in that song that I thought it was a fitting first song. And then, of course, Molly put her own spin on it, which uh, I think just made it fantastic. Yeah, it's beautiful. And she's got, I think, um, I think one thing that maybe her style shares with Tony's is there's a real elegance to the way she plays. Um, there's a real sort of clarity and you sort of hear every note and it's, it's, it just, it suits that beautifully. You know, it's, it's, it really does. She's not a brute force player who just tries to power through and, and overpower you with a solo. There's a lot of technique and a lot of intricacies that uh, you can pick up on if you really do tune in to, to listen. Yeah, it's beautiful hearing those two guitars together. Um, and it's such a, you know, the thing that struck me first when I listened, oh, that's the first track I heard, like probably most of us. Um, and you're, it's a very intimate sound. It feels like you're right there in the room with you guys. You know, your guitar sort of kicks in and then your voice comes in and it's very immediate and very close up to me when i picture what tony rice um meant to me or what he sounded like to me i think that song kind of sums it up i mean when i go back to his original track and i did go back and listen quite extensively you know while before i recorded while we were recording you know i really did want to do it justice and think that i was you know was 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 uh, doing the best version i could um you know, I'm surprised at a lot of things. As I went through the whole record, I mean, a lot of the stuff that Tony did, I wasn't surprised. You know, I, I, I found myself fascinated with even how fast he did some of the songs. Um, I, I'm looking at 10 Degrees and Getting Colder as one of the tracks that when I went through and, and checked it, I mean, I've played that song for a lifetime and I've listened to it for a lifetime. I've never played it with the track. And when I got hmm. down to realize the actual tempo that he did that kickoff, man, it was so much harder than I thought it was going to be. Like I've played it forever, but apparently I played it at my own slow pace where I could get through it. And then when I tried to actually replicate what that song made me feel like, I thought the tempo was a big part of what it made me, you know, how it made me feel. And I wanted to, I wanted to copy that. So yeah, I had to, I had to get up to speed to play the stuff he did. Like it's very, very difficult uh, right-hand movements that I had to work on for sure to make, uh, to make a lot of that happen. And it's funny when you really listen to it, and like you say, the tempo and stuff, it's songs like uh, things like One More Night from Church Street Blues that just sound so, so simple. And so you think, like, you think, oh, I could do that. I could do that. And then you sit down, and you go, of course I can't do that. I can't make my pick do that, let alone at that speed. But it just sounds so. One of the other songs that I love that I wanted to consider for this for this record, but, but again, you know, it he has so much he has a wealth of material it's hard to pick and choose what it is but that's one of the great ones yes i'd love those tracks where essentially he's playing rhythm and lead at the same time and his left hand's not doing a looks like it's not doing a great deal but just the choices of how he gets around those notes and how he sort of just the little cross-picking rhythms and where he chooses to place the emphasis and where he goes across the beat and it's like it's sort of mind-boggling isn't it 
no one could do it like him. I've had the the great fortune to be in in studios where we've done recordings where Tony was part of the recording and after everyone has left, I mean the first thing the engineer and myself would do would be to solo his tracks and listen to him by himself just to hear what he's, you know, what he's doing with all that because it, it makes such a such an incredible kind of type of glue type of sound. His his playing makes everything come together. Um what I found is in solo mode by itself very hard to understand it doesn't make a lot it's not anything you would try to replicate if you listen to it by itself he reacts um to to everything he hears so really without someone playing something right ahead of it there's he's you you never know what he would play it doesn't necessarily make sense until you hear what came before and then you go ah he's reacting to everything that happens with his rhythm playing and he was a master of that art um very very fun to get to pick it apart and, and uh, see how that stuff works and i'd heard you say or i read you say at some point that some of your favorite your favorite breaks and all the bluegrass are played over tony's rhythm playing for that sort of very reason really no absolutely um it was late in my career or you know i was well into my career i think before i discovered what i really loved about the bluegrass music i mean i thought when i was 12 years old that it was the banjo and i asked my parents for a banjo and i and i listened to that jd crow and new south record that had tony on it you know and and tried to play all that stuff um for a lifetime before i kind of figured out and it was actually brought to my attention through through a, a bluegrass friend that said really you know i you know i i really only like the good banjo players when they're with the good guitar players and and I thought about it, and and truly, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge, I mean, all my favorite banjo players had monster guitar players with him, and I learned, you know, shortly after that, it really was the the relationship that a banjo and a guitar had together that really made me love it so much. And the more I got into that, the more I realized how integral the guitar rhythm is to banjo playing. Without the right guitar rhythm. It just it it just doesn't get sold the right way, you know. It just it doesn't feel right. Yeah, and it's uh, interestingly you chose to do a track off Skaggs Rice and chose not to play the guitar on that. Did you? Was that were you originally going to get a mandolin player to come in for that, or because you played mandolin to Billy Strings guitar on that, didn't you? And I wondered with with a Tony tribute record if you'd been tempted to do the guitar on that one. Well, so again. I'm always tempted to do the guitar on that, but there was a, at the thought of doing a bunch of duet songs, um, a mandolin playing was a big part of my career um, growing up. And, and I used to do a lot of that duet stuff on the mandolin. And I, I was, I was looking for an opportunity to get to play, you know, uh, the mandolin on one. And at the thought of Billy strings being the guitar part, there was no way I wanted to do a double guitar with, with Billy. I mean, what am I going to try to do? You know? So it, it would, it made perfect sense to me that uh, if I were going to play mandolin, it would be on a track where I could have someone like Billy play the guitar. And I thought it, it ended up working very well. And it's cool hearing him. Cause there's a sort of a bit of Doc Watson creeps into everything Billy does and just hearing, hearing him on that. And some of the sort of the, like the sort of train style hammer-ons on the bass strings and the rhythm parts. If it just, it gives it a slightly different flavor, which I love. It's amazing. He does. He has like the the Doc Watson or I'd call it a Norman Blakey type of type of right hand. I mean, yeah, um, Norman had that very flowing right hand and would start runs a couple notes early, lower than you would expect him to to go into the runs. And Billy does that uh, a lot. I, I noticed some Norman in him and some Tony in him. If you listen to early Tony, you know, when he was doing a lot of Clarence influence stuff, you know, all that stuff mm -hmm. is in there. 
Billy's taking it to his own level and just crushing it now. It's really fun to hear him play. Yeah, and it's it's really cool too. And also just uh, how good your voices sound together on that. I mean, Billy's also, obviously, we all know you're a great singer, uh, but I think well, Billy's singing goes under the radar sometimes a bit as well because his guitar playing so so obvious. It was how good it is. Of the, because when I when I invited Billy to do that song, I of course I'd heard him sing and know he's he's obviously a very quality singer, but that doesn't necessarily mean your voices will work together. And uh, that was one of the really pleasant surprises that uh, when we started singing immediately, it was even hard for me to pick out which one was singing lead at first. I mean, it's it his his uh, the timbre of his voice and 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 mine we absolutely worked really well together again we didn't know that going in if that was going to if that was going to be uh you know something that was going to work or if we were going to have to struggle around you know uh, some stuff but we were we were both very happy that uh yeah the voices worked together i i loved singing with them it was great it was really cool hearing it because exactly like you said just the, the first sort of first minute or two i was like oh hang on who's who, uh, who's in which ear here and then, and then there was one particular bit of phrasing or something that made it obvious. It was like, oh, cool. I couldn't work it out for a minute. Yeah. My wife asked me if I was singing lead. <laughs> she knows. Brilliant. That's, yeah. It got through. And um, I'd love to talk to you about, about your track on it one more time before you go. It's, um, it's very... So it feels, it feels really personal, which is lovely. And there's all sorts of little just touches and nods and lots of little references to other bluegrass songs in there. And it feels incredibly like, um, just, it feels incredibly affectionate, the sort of warmth and the, you know, there's something in there that feels very personal. So this song, I definitely, it was, it was written to be very personal to me and to Josh. So there are, there are some little phrases in there and, and some things that, uh, that, um, weren't necessarily looked at or written with a commercial mind. You know, this, this was not, I didn't look at this song as, uh, as writing this for the masses. This was something that was really pointed at what I wanted to say to Tony, how I felt about him. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, if we were talking back and forth, Josh and I, and, and if we said, you know, if you could tell him anything, what would you tell him? I said, if I could tell him anything, Oh, I said, my God, I just tell him I loved him. I would just tell him that I just literally, that I just, loved him and I and, and I would want to hear him do it you know I'd want to hear him play you know all that stuff I'd want to hear him tell all the stories that you know he told in his songs you know just at, at, at least one more time you know before before he went away and that was the genesis of the song um was was truly a very personal feeling it wasn't it wasn't it was never pointed at a mass audience it was uh this is a little window inside of how how we felt about uh how we felt about the loss of our of our idol and I think that's that's sort of how music works at its best anyway. If it's personal to you, it will resonate with other people. And particularly when you're writing about somebody that, you know, maybe the rest of us didn't know and certainly didn't know the way some of you guys did. But I think when somebody's music's touched that many people, um, there's something that's going to resonate out of that, even if we don't know exactly what it is you're talking about. Well, in, in listen, you know, I try to listen to my songs, you know, after with a, with an open mind as a, as a new listener and, um, I do think the message comes across that um, that there's someone out there that meant the world to to a lot of people, and I think the song definitely comes across that we're just trying to trying to praise him and hold him up uh, one more time and just share share a little more love for for the one who affected us all. 
There's a lovely line in there. Um, you have to forgive me if I get it wrong because I meant to write it down and didn't. I think it's everywhere I go, you come along. And just that. Well, that's just, true. There's not been a time that I have ever walked on a stage or that I've ever tuned a guitar that I didn't feel something that I got from Tony. I mean, he was my my master model of, of the tone that I wanted to get. I mean, I ended up changing a lot of things. I definitely brought my own style to it. But he was a template. He was, he was something that I... I I don't know that I've ever played um, and not carried him with me in, in this, in the spirit of what I'm trying to play. The type of excitement that he brought to music is what I hope I can, I can one day bring. And if those, those sort of things that you, you took from Tony's playing and stuff you adapted to your own and things that maybe came from other influences, what other, could you sort of put your finger on specific things that, that did come from Tony that you still see in your playing now? I think a lot of it's playing. I think a lot of it's singing. I mean, he was an underrated singer. Everyone talks about his guitar playing, but I really thought his ability to phrase um, the the words of a song in a way that made them believable and 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 comfortable to digest. When you listen to the stories, the way he told them, he never tried to uh, he never tried to be flashy or show off the singing licks. Right? He I always felt mm-hmm. like I really understood that he was telling me a story in a message. When he sang, so I really, I mean, that's something that I, I, I still look for in every time I, I work up a song. I want to think that I'm, I'm not just singing for the, for the vote for the licks of singing, but that I'm trying to relay a message. And, and Tony's career influenced that greatly in mine. Yeah, uh, it's funny, isn't it? Because in maybe in a bluegrass jam situation, the song can just be a vehicle for people to take a load of breaks on. Um, but, but a song, a song delivered well is a, a thing that lifts everything i spent most of my career without listening to lyrics and without listening to uh words of songs i was very much a a player i heard you know the little notes how they work together where they were in time with each other um i was i spent all my time trying to figure that out and even early on a lot of my singing i kind of did the same thing I, i tried to really use my voice as an instrument and and sing pretty and in tune and, and get everything out. But I really wasn't latched on very, very solidly to the, the message or what I was trying to say. And as I got older, um, for whatever reason, you know, later in my life, the lyrics and the messages started meaning a little more to me. And I started paying a little more attention to that. And it was, you know, it was, it was later in my career that I got to appreciate that about Tony's playing. And, and he definitely, influences me and how I how I try to to sing the songs that I sing now you know I want to I want to feel like I'm doing the same thing like I'm I'm telling stories in a way that people don't have to struggle to to put the put the words together and is that sort of deepened as you've started to write more because I know you've got another you've got a full record coming out next year and I believe you wrote all the tracks on that I did. You know, it's the first time in my life I've, I've really been writing bluegrass music. I always thought it was a very difficult music to write. And I felt like all the all the songs were kind of already written, if, if you will. And I wasn't, a, you know, I, I so talking about the songwriting, there are songwriters and there are people who write songs. Um, I put myself in that second category. Um, I didn't wake up for a lifetime thinking I have to put this thought on, on in a song or on on, you know, on a paper. But uh at a certain point in my career, I decided I did want to start trying my hand at writing some songs. And I took a publishing deal with um, Barry Coburn at 1010 Publishing. And I, I wrote for him for about three years. And I, I found myself in writer rooms with strangers, people, you know, new people every day. 
that I went in was, was someone new that I didn't know. And I, and you just, you learn these things from, you know, everyone has their own techniques, their own methods, their own way they get from A to B, their own way of telling a story. And as you accumulate some knowledge there, you kind of build the songwriting muscle up, I think, or at least I did. And I got to a point where I felt, started to feel a little bit, you know, I, I started to feel a little more competent in, in my writing. And then uh, I started, you know, I, I tried my hand at a couple of bluegrass songs, which, which really, for the first couple of three years, you know, I really didn't try to write bluegrass songs. And then I found I, I, I kind of liked the songs, you know, that I was, was coming up with. And again, as I started doing more and more, um, I felt like I found a little, uh, you know, I felt like I found my little main street of, of the type of songs I like to sing and sing about. They're just, you know, they're, they're my own version of, of you know, of, of bluegrass music and, and what the topics can be. And they range pretty widely from, you know, the, from you name it, ghost songs, love songs, um, songs that are about philosophy, songs that are about, I mean, just, it's a pretty wide range. But anyway, to shorten this, for the first time in my life, I'm writing bluegrass songs and I'm really trying to write songs for myself. And it's, it's been amazing to, uh, to not only, you know, be able to come up with the songs, but then to, to put together the band that, that really does play them so well. I mean, uh, we just, you, you mentioned we came out of the studio. I have 15 new songs recorded and um, it's, I'm, I'm, it's my best project yet. I mean, it's, it's going to be the next, I mean, I know we're talking about the Tony Rice the, the tribute record and and that is that has a very very solid rooted place in my soul but the next you know the well, I'm, I'm still looking at that as somewhat of, of moose bouche to the to the real meal that's coming this bluegrass record that i'm getting ready to put out i think is really going to solidify you know um the the type of music i want to play from this point forward it's uh and with the type of band i want to play it with my guys are and gals are so amazing and uh, the record came together so well I'm so anxious. I really full of angst and excitement for this one to come out because there's a lot of really, really good stuff I'm excited for. So who's who's in the band for this one then? Um, my band, I have a six-piece band. I'm playing guitar, of course, and singing. Um, uh, I'll just go look across the stage. As you're looking up at the band on your far left, you're going to see uh, Harry Clark playing mandolin. Um, next to him, Maddie Denton playing fiddle and singing. Um, playing the bass fiddle behind us all, Grace Davis. Um, to my left, the audience is right. Uh, Gavin Largent is playing dobro and singing. And uh, then we have Jason Davis playing banjo. And I mean, when you talk about, well, okay, I was going to, I was going to mention the banjo playing. I could look at every instrument and say everybody up on that uh, stage, they are all kind of in their own best in show class um they're amazing i mean individually you you're not going to find a better version of whatever instrument you're looking at and collectively they somehow manage to be more than the sum of their parts they're really awesome at listening and reacting to each other when we play we've i've had so much fun in the in the studio is really uh, this record will really show that you you will hear so much stuff that is going to sound like we we really took a microscope and really worked it out and we really didn't. We just sat in there and reacted to each other and had fun. And it just sounds like it has. Uh, it sounds like there are more hours in it than there are. It's a. It's. It really came together so well. I'm very proud of those guys. They're great. So how did that band come together then? I mean, I I, I hadn't really heard of um, Harry Clark until I interviewed Bronwyn Keith Hines recently, and he played mandolin on her solo record. Um, I just started listening to him. Like he's incredible. I haven't heard Harry um, until, I mean, at, at, the, at first, Adam Steffi was playing mandolin in this band. Um, 
Adam found a situation where he didn't want to be on the road or couldn't be on the road. And um, when I, so I was asking around and, and looking for who might be out there in the world of mandolin. And it was, uh, I think it was Gavin, the guy playing Dobro said, um, Harry Clark is, has got to be the guy. And I was like, Harry Clark. And he says, you know, Harry's dating Maddie, you know, so he's actually dating my fiddle player. And of course, Maddie didn't want to tell me about Harry because she thought that she would be biased and that I would I would not give him proper consideration because, you know, she says, I'm not just going to suggest, you know, my boyfriend, you know, it has, you know, so she never mentioned Harry. And so the first chance we got to come together and, and play together, um, <laughs> I was I'm, I'm like the biggest Harry Clark fan there is um, his playing. He has the ability to play, first of all, multiple styles of mandolin, which is really, you know, handy in in the the wide array of, of things that I've recorded through my career. So he can kind of cover all the styles um, from very traditional to very progressive and everything in between. But uh, and I learned this mostly in the studio of, of watching him play, you know, over the course of a, an entire record worth of stuff. Every solo he played, every time we did a take of a song. He never played the same thing twice. I mean, he doesn't work from a handful of licks and you're going to get, you know, you don't get bored with Harry. You can watch Harry all night and stay interested. And and he just he's magnificent. He really is. uh, He's one of the best mandolin players out there. That's all I can. That's all I can say. And I can go down the line and talk about each musician there. Maddie, same way on fiddle. Gavin on the dobro. He's clearly the one who's going to carry the torch, you know, from from jerry from this point forward i mean there's there's no one like him he is he is incredible and you get to hear just such a small amount of what he can do on stage if you sat backstage and just heard him warm up you would probably quit playing if you were a a player at that point he's just incredible and they all are they're just each one insane insane fun to play with and uh yeah I'm, i'm very excited at this point and that's quite some accolade given how many hours you must have racked up looking across the stage at jerry douglas playing well, I've, I've been jokingly saying this on stage. You know, I'm known to to play with a with a with pretty good dobro player. You know, in my in my in my other band, um, and I never thought I would be on. You know, I never thought I would sit across from anyone else with that instrument that could do the same type of thing to me and and really just play with a freedom of whatever he can think of. He can play. He doesn't. Again, he doesn't have a a stash of licks that you're either going to hear one of these five things he can play anything he can think and, and just with, with huge emotion, it's really, really fun to get to play with Gabe. And again, I, you know, I've been in the studio here this past couple of weeks, you know, with Jerry and every time I sit around, you know, Jerry, I'm re-reminded that, you know, the instrument is not what it is without him. He's just, so it's, it's really fun to, uh, to get to have, you know, a big taste of how it got there and then uh, watch the guys, you know, take everything Jerry's done and then add their own thing to it. It's pretty amazing. And to talk about, so you were saying earlier about that, the relationship between banjo and guitar being incredibly important for bluegrass and that being the key to it for you. Um, and so just to tell me a little bit about, about that in the band then, how, how that's panning out. Well, first of all, so having myself grown up a banjo player, I, I have such a deep love for the banjo. Um, and then I can say playing in Allison Krauss and Union Station for the years that, you know, I mean, where I'm three decades into, into that band playing with Ron Block. And I think that's been our key to success that we are we are we're both banjo slash guitar players we don't just focus on one we have a a pretty deep understanding of both sides of that so playing together banjo mandolin is really great and so when i find myself in a situation in my current band with someone like jason davis 
um, arguably the best banjo player in the world. I mean, he's he's like a robot. He can just his right hand is perfection. He is he is so clean and powerful in his tone. Just uh, just everything about his playing turns me on. I just love it. So the chance to play guitar, to play rhythm with someone who plays banjo like that is what excites me. It, it you know, like um, you'll notice upon this record. I mean, I do take maybe one or two guitar solos. Um, I don't spend a lot of time soloing. I have much more fun reacting with rhythm to whatever someone else is doing than I do playing the actual solos myself. So there's a couple solos on the record. You know, I didn't want to, you know, keep it void of guitar solos, but I paid a lot more attention to uh, how I was playing with, with Jason and with, with, with Gavin and Harry and Maddie. It's, it's a, it's a dream situation to be able to react to people of that elk. It's very, very fun. And is that, so is that the band now you're going to get to tour with the same people? We have been out for the past uh, year. Um, I hope this band never changes. I mean, I know there's there at some point in the future, you know, there's, I think it's inevitable that Allison and union station, you know, we'll have to play some more music somewhere, but uh, I'm trying to fill all my time up with this band. I, I truly am in love with music again. Um, I'm loving playing with these guys. Um, we, we had a, a big weekend this weekend. I, I, probably logged in maybe 45 or 50 hours of driving this weekend. Um, and I never thought I would be excited about doing that again. Um, but if I can get to go play with those guys, man, no problem at all. I'm ready. That sounds incredibly cool. Um, so another thing I've heard you say in interviews before is that that sort of the road is where you feel at home. And is that, is that sort of, I guess after a bit of time of not being able to do that, it must be incredibly exciting to be out again. It is, you know, the, what I'll say is through this, and, and this might sound a little cliche, I, it, I'm not the first one I've heard say this, but it is definitely true to me, and I was saying this before I ever heard anyone say it, what what that whole period did for me really was, I, I, I look at it with a silver lining because it really did make me reevaluate what was important to me in my life, and, and the it, it put an emphasis on, on what I wanted to do from this point forward. Um, I don't have the passion to do what I'm doing right now without having had it taken away from me for a little while. I mean, I can honestly say I, I want it a lot more now than I did, you know, in 2019 before I was aware uh, of, of what the world could be like and, and, you know, given a, the wrong situation. So yeah, it, it, it lit a fire under me that I don't think I could ever have had we not gone through that whole period of, of, you know, 2020. So I'm thrilled of, of how it ended up because I, I ended up with a, with a bigger fire. I ended up with a, with a recording studio at my home that I can do things that I couldn't do before. I ended up with a band of, of people I certainly wouldn't have had, had I not um, found myself, you know, such a deep need to, to get it done now that there's the chance. So yeah, I look at from this point forward as I'm, I'm probably better off than I would have been had we not, uh, had we not endured, you know, that, that rough year. I think so many of us went through similar experiences. I mean, to be honest, that's why this podcast exists, is I was playing a lot of mandolin before lockdowns hit and then just found myself craving a bigger sound that would fill a room when I was playing on my own and started playing guitar again and learning some of the fiddle tunes. And that's where the basis of this podcast, the backing tracks came out of, and then the interviews got added to that. And I suddenly find myself sat having conversations like this with you that 
you know, going back a couple of years seems utterly unimaginable, but it's entirely born out of sort of looking at what matters and choosing to do the things that get you excited. I mean, looking at what matters, I think, is the key to, to everything that we're talking about, looking at what matters. You know, I, I didn't, I spent, you know, a, a couple of decades, you know, hiding from the internet and from any social media and from, and, you know, I really tried to stay very private. I didn't want to put myself out there. I didn't, you know, offer anything to, to Instagram or Facebook or any of the, the formats that's changed for me. You know, I, you have, you have, you have this much time and, and so much to do with it that, uh, you know, I've, I've found that more than anything, you know, I want people to know, who I am, who my band is, you know, what, what I like to do when I'm not playing music or, you know, stuff like that. I don't feel, I don't feel the need at this point to uh, protect myself quite so much. Um, because again, it's what matters, what matters to me. It's the connection. It's what I've always, um, it's what I've always drawn from the music. When I first started playing it for my very first bluegrass festivals, it was a sense of community that drew me into this type of music. And it's the community that still keeps me here now. So you can't really have that without connecting. So things like this to be able to, um, you know, do it over the, over the airwaves or how, how, whatever you have to do to get it done. I think it's very important and it is what matters. Yeah. I think that's incredibly true. I think the one thing that maybe all of us, but I particularly learned from a couple of years of not being able to connect with people is just how much connecting with people matter to me. I sort of, I think I've always allowed myself to think that somehow being self-sufficient is a good thing. And it's some sort of, badge of honor to be able to and it's like nah i mean it's handy at times but people that's what it's all about it can keep you in a safe bubble at times yes that's it can be okay at times but i think there's a lot more at stake than trying to uh close myself off or anyone trying to close their self off from uh i mean it's the connectivity that makes everything wonderful so yeah uh, kudos that, that you have this podcast and that we that we get to do stuff like this and we get to continue to go out and hear live music even in this day of you can sit at home and you can watch everything in a day on on youtube or on a lot of channels you can really get fed right you can see everything but you don't feed the same part of your soul is when you actually venture out into the world and go meet people live and in person and watch the music being created right in front of you there's just, there's nothing else like it. And, and that's the, you know, I, I try to encourage everyone, you know, all that's, that's my, my mission statement, you know, at the, at, in most of the interviews I do, it's, it's about getting people to really dive into live music and make those connections because it is about the people you meet, not just the music you hear. That's really cool. And I, I there is something about live music that is, well, there's some, some, types of music where people can go to a gig and they just want to hear the album performed perfectly in front of them and then they'll go home happy. And then there's the opposite end of it where you go for an experience. And so, for example, I went to see Billy Strings a couple of times earlier this year in the UK when he came over. And um, and he like he's on a mission to give you, to, to sort of pick you up and then put you back down somewhere slightly different than you started off. And he's on that journey himself. It's like it's, a, it's about, um, it's an incredible sort of marshalling of energy that he does. But I think that's all live performance really is just learning how to work with energy and create something that wasn't there to start with, that everybody is part of. You know, anyone can close their eyes and listen, you know, but if you go to see a show, there should be a visual aspect to your show. You should be concerned about how you move, how your band moves, what the lights look like, what the stage looks like. There is a, I mean, there's, there is a lot to it. Um, 
yeah, I want to go see a show. I, I want to feel like I'm learning a little bit about the person that's up there on stage, not just watching them try to replicate a record. And, and I have spent, I'm guilty. You know, I've spent a lot of years trying to replicate the record, you know, but the most fun and the most I've ever connected with people is when I have stepped out of that box and not worried at all about trying to reproduce a record, but to actually entertain and have fun with whatever audience I'm in front of. And as, as the career moves forward, you know, I find that's more and more important to me. Um, you know, I, I mean, I bring the record with me. If anyone wants to hear the record, I, I, you know, they, they can put it on anytime they want. You know, if you come to see a show, I hope you, you are going to get some, something you couldn't get anywhere else, but at that show. And do you get a different thing as a musician out of the different sort of environments? Because the rehearsal room and a recording studio and a stage are very different places and each have the opportunity to, to sort of stretch out and express different types of things in different ways. Absolutely. Even to between different venues um, of live music will make you play different things. I mean, there are crowd. I mean, I will tailor the songs that I put in a set according to the crowds that I think are going to be there. There are late night crowds who are drinking more and partying more that you're going to tailor your songs a little more to what you feel like they're going to want to hear. There are, um, there are crowds, you know, maybe the NPR crowds, they, they're going to listen to a little more words. They can handle a little more content. Um, so I'll tailor sets, you know, it just depends. I mean, you know, to, to be able to, again, to be able to react is a huge part of being able to play live music. Um, I don't know that I could have one show that's just going to translate to everyone. You know, if I'm playing to little kids, you know, I want them to feel safe and fun and funny. And, you know, and if I'm playing to serious people who really want some, some meat and potatoes, you know, and lyrics, then I'm going to play them different songs. So, you know, it's, it, it's a thrill to get to, you know, I mean, it's, it's a journey truly to, to be able to, to take a style of music, particularly bluegrass music. I don't know how I got in bluegrass music. I love all styles of music, right? I'm a huge wannabe drummer, percussion. I love big electric guitars, like big loud music really does do it for me. I love it. But if when I play music, there's something about the honesty of playing bluegrass music and how you can translate a story through that genre. I'm fascinated with. So, you know, I'm, I'm at a point in my career where I'm trying to write more and, and express more and, and connect more. And I think that's, that's the important stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting that cause I love sort of all sorts of music as well, but there's something about a relatively small, all acoustic ensemble where you have to create the tone you're going for with your hands and your fingers and your personality rather than like, I mean, yeah, there's nothing, I'd love a nice big distorted amp and some pedals, but there's something beautiful about watching people sort of pass the sound around between them and they have to entirely generate it themselves oh and and as players you know you grow to appreciate just how difficult it is i mean the the scenario i've said to, you know i've said this for a lifetime you can take almost any bluegrass band and give them electric instruments and they sound fantastic you can take most electric bands and give them bluegrass instruments and they don't sound so fantastic it turns out bluegrass music um is very difficult to play well you know and and it does you have to you have to be in charge of everything you hear with your hands the angle of your pick how loud you press the strings the i mean everything you can't you can't reach over and turn a knob or a button or you know flip a switch and and have the sound improve or you know be what it needs to be so yeah i'm i'm fascinated with the thought of of 
live bluegrass acoustic music. It is. I think it's it's a pure music form. And uh, if you understand just how difficult it is to truly for a band to play together and and sound, you know, great like a band. Yeah, so much goes into it. I'm I'm still fascinated with. It. I think that's one of the the sort of joyous things about bluegrass because it is if you know what's going under the hood, that is infinitely kind of fascinating and will never not be. So we sort of going back to what we talked about with Tony playing one more night and just thinking, oh, it's just playing three chords and adding a bit of, and you go, oh my god, he's doing what is he doing? But then you sort of listen to, however complicated bluegrass can get, it also is incredibly accessible to listen to. Like with jazz, when jazz is being played very well, it usually lets you know it's being played very well. Like you can see how complicated, but because the harmonic structures are relatively simple, the material like thematically is pretty accessible. Even some of the most accomplished bluegrass, you're a non-musician could sit down and just tap their toe and go, yeah, great song. Right, right, right. It sort of opens its arms and lets you in. You know, I, I hear people, you know, compare bluegrass to jazz all the time. And it and it is, it's, it's, it's a very free music. I mean, everyone, first of all, that you can meet a bunch of new people at a bluegrass festival. You can show up with your mandolin or with your guitar or whatever, and you can be playing in a band setting in 10 minutes of arriving and you're sitting down playing with new people that you, that you can do that and react to each other. First of all, I don't know if there's anything as beautiful as that. Like that is what got me into it. It's, it's, it's definitely what kept me into it. Um, and had I not had the ability to go meet people and play and, and, and have that freedom to throw back and forth in the same way that jazz musicians would just meet up and boom, they don't have to have played the song together before. They can go. There's a bunch of standards. There are a bunch of jazz standards. They would just say, we'll, we'll play this. And boom, they have their own version. They have their own band. You know, and bluegrass people have been doing that since bluegrass has existed. You know, there's that list of jam session songs that you can't wait to get there. And again, I, I, I was fascinated with, with the culture of it as, as a little kid. And I think it's still so beautiful now. I mean, the bluegrass festivals particularly are some of my favorite places to go because you get to see more of that community unfold right there in front of you and that's uh that's 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 a big charge for me so the tony tribute ep is out now when we when will we get to hear the the full album is that next year the full, well we're trying to i'm trying to figure out how i can even just pre-release anything that i can so that i can get it so that i can get it out there i mean i'm so i'm so excited for the music um, but simultaneously, I'm so unaware of the logistics of the timing of how the business needs it to come out and this between this date and this date and what I, I really can't say I understand a lot of that. It's it's disappointing when I hear uh, when I hear, you know, when I hear it come back that we have to wait to put anything out because this stuff is, you know, like, I mean, the people on my little inner circle are very excited for it. I've been playing it for uh, for for my people they're so pumped they're like you got to be kidding it's you can't put you put it out like i can't put it's got to come so we're looking we're looking into next year yes it's really unfortunate that we have to wait but what i'm hoping is that um i'll be able to pre-release um a few of these songs before it comes out because i think there's i'm extremely excited for people to hear and uh, i would rather that be sooner than than later and that's the joy i guess of the streaming platforms is it's possible just to put something out you know, as a, as a bit of a teaser and, and get things out there. 
I, I think, well, I'm looking for a way to make it possible, whether it is possible or not. Um, if it means stepping outside of the box a little bit, I'm happy to do that. I mean, my mission is to get this music out there. I mean, I didn't record it so that I could sit on it and not, uh, not have people hear it. So yeah, the mission is to, is to, is to get it out as soon as possible. Um, again, I will, I will definitely, We've we've been talking, and there are, there are ways to pre-release a couple of these songs before the actual record hits the shelf. So yeah, we're we're going to have music out asap. Cool. Well, I was excited to hear it before, but I'm even more excited now. It sounds it sounds like you're really pumped about this, so I'm really looking forward to hearing it. And not stress it enough. I have never been so happy about a recording. Um, I, I've had the good fortune, you know, through my career to have been on a few records that ended up doing really well. Um, with from Lonesome River Band Records to Allison Records, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou Records, you know, a, a lot of stuff. I've never, you know, I, I feel as strongly now as I felt on any of them. Uh, it's, I think this one is gonna, this is, this is, you know, it's, it's gonna be hard to follow this record. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. I've really enjoyed this. It's, it's been a, it's been a treat. Matt, it's my pleasure. And thank you for everything that you do. It, uh, it, it takes this for, for everything to keep growing. So it's, it's my pleasure and honor to be here. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.